Welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. I'm Jennifer Diane Gustin, your host. Storytelling is just one of the best ways for adoptees to convey what has happened in their life from their perspective and a great way to open up to the adoption community. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our family of origin. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation, validation even, that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing. My next guest and I met at an Adoption Constellation Conference about 10 years ago, and I appreciated how we have been able to stay connected in the community since then. We recently fellowshiped through a Zoom meeting this year, and I'm thrilled that she said yes to this conversation. Her name is Shayla Durant. She has been a staunch advocate for open records, adoptee causes, and rights as an adoptee herself. She co-facilitated the Adoption News Service newsletter and is the co-moderator of Black Adoptee Support and Education. She was featured in the six-word adoption memoirs created by Ridge House and Derek Frank. Shayla is a same-race domestic adoptee born in western Michigan during the late 1960s and adopted by loving parents. She grew up in a healthy environment and became a writer and journalist. She is the mother of one daughter who is rapidly approaching adulthood. During this episode, she will succinctly share a part of her journey of relinquishment, adoption, and the search for her biological mother. The results of Shayla's reunion took me by surprise. The story of her beginnings that had been handed down by her birth mother, Shayla continues to process, along with the impact it has had on other maternal biological family. In her voice, you will hear about parenting as an adoptee, navigating the rocky road of reunion, and making sense of it continues to be a work in progress. Allow me to introduce you to a person who launched a search for her biological mother at the early age of 15 with a visit to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Afterwards, at the age of 18, she asked Bethany Christian Services, her adoption agency, for non-identifying information. She learned she was abandoned in a hospital for six days and later placed in a foster home a few miles away from her biological family. Shayla, at the age of 22, learned her biological mother told her siblings she was stillborn. This is how she started her reunion, returning from the dead. Well, hello, Shayla. Welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. How are you doing today? I'm great, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. I know we met some years ago 
at the American Adoption Congress, the AAC conference, and I believe it was Ohio. Let's see. It was either Ohio, it might have been Denver, but it was definitely an AAC conference. Yes. Yeah, it may have been Denver, right. Yeah, I went to two in Denver, and I remember Cleveland. I've been to Atlanta. I've been to Orlando. Yeah, but I know when I met you, you were just a joy. And we've managed to stay in contact through the years. And I'm glad that you said yes to this conversation because I know, as you've told me in previous conversations, that you haven't done this before. So I thank you for trusting me. No, you're quite welcome, and I appreciate you for having me. And I know that you were a part of Rich House and Derek Frank's six-word adoption memoirs, right? Correct, yes. What were your six words? Oh, goodness gracious, let me think about it, because it was only six words. I think I said, the weirdness of adoption last generations. Mm, I like that. Yeah, mine today and has been for probably a couple of years, is I seek belonging versus fitting in. I thought that six-word adoption memoir was just really a wonderful project for adoptees to to kind of take a look at how they could bring just six words together to describe how they're feeling. And those six words can change, right? I think they can change. I think mine has been pretty consistent. I had to really think long and hard about them. And I think that the genesis of those six words were um, when I just said the weirdness of adoption can last generations. You know, I have a child, she's 17, but I'm still an adopted person or a person who was adopted into my family. And she still experiences all of those adopted moments and adopted parts of myself. Mm, That's good. Yeah, I would agree. My son is 33 and Yeah, he's definitely affected by the fact that I'm an adoptee. Okay. Yeah. So I know you are currently living in Maryland, but you were born in Western Michigan? Yes, exactly. Well, let me ask you, how is it going there in Maryland today? Well, it's going well. I mean, I think weather-wise, it's well. Uh, You know, climate-wise, it's well. But yes, it's going great. And I'm in Nashville, and it's beautiful today. And I remember you telling me that this this I never heard before. Nashville is the Los Angeles of the South. Why did you say that? How did you come up with that? I came up with that because I went to my very first AAC conference. It was in that, maybe it was my second one, but it was in Nashville. And I remember seeing like, when you walk down through downtown Nashville, there are all the record company buildings, the high rises. You see people, musicians on the street from all over the world, you know, looking to break into the music industry. That was what it looked like to me. There was live music everywhere. So I just called it like the Los Angeles of the South. I love it. I would agree with that. And I meet a lot of people that have relocated here from L.A., Musicians, yes, a lot of talent here in Nashville, and I, I rather enjoy that. I love live music. Absolutely. It is the, one of the best places um, I've been for live music. It's like live music is everywhere, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, it starts early. Like, I don't know any other place. I've heard Austin, Texas, maybe, that has live music, like, throughout the day, every day. Yeah. 
there's so much to your journey, your relinquishment, adoption, search and reunion journey. So let's just get into it for the listeners, wherever you want to start and however much you want to share. Sure, sure. So I was, uh, you know, born in, in Western Michigan. I just found out the hospital maybe in 2016. Before that, I didn't know. When I was 15, I mean, I never looked like anyone in my family. I have a brother who was adopted from the same agency. I just wanted to know where I came from. So my parents were very progressive and they allowed me to skip school one day and go to Grand Rapids, Michigan. I went to probate court to get a copy of my birth certificate. The woman at the probate court said, well, we don't have you here. And I just was surprised that there was no record of me. And I later learned that, I guess because I was adopted, that my records had been sealed or in a different place. And so that led me to start looking at what that looks like. How does that work? Who gave birth to me? This was before the Internet. Um, We got copies of the legal news so you could see who got married around the time that I was born just things like that. So it was very sort of investigative process. If we fast forward to being in college at 18, I was old enough to get non-identifying information from Bethany Services. And that was where I just sort of started trying to figure out who I was. I think if I fast forward to when I was 21, I was in grad school and I reached out to, I think we call them now search angels. And I found one who was very savvy with paperwork and records. She was able to locate a sister of my biological mother. That's when things got a little bit dicey for all of us. Mm, What do you mean dicey? What happened? The woman who gave birth to me had told her family, she had a very large family, several siblings, between 10 and 13 siblings, I believe. But she told them all that I had died or that I was stillborn. Mm. And they didn't realize I was alive until I was 22 years old. And so, and some of them still thought I was stillborn. So what's happening right now is I'm in reunion with a few brothers and sisters, but there are some that didn't know that I was alive. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Yes. I would imagine that they went through shock. They were stunned. I think that they said that they mourned their sister's loss as a family. They were really sad for her. And so for me to not be lost or dead is something that they have to kind of figure out why she did this to them. Right. How did it make you feel? It was odd. It was because I'm walking and talking and breathing and have a child. And so it was it was sort of, it was sort of surreal and i think one of the odd parts or one of the things that struck me is that there is a biological aunt who named her daughter after me in memoriam okay and the odd part is that my biological mother didn't give me the name that the biological aunt has named her child after and so She's basically naming her child after somebody who she thought was dead, but that was named by someone else, not her sister. Mm, That does seem so complicated. 
I did meet a biological sister, half sister, I'm sorry, when I was 22 and she was eight. So there's a 15 year age difference. I'll back up a little bit. I remember meeting her at the airport and I remember they mispronounced my name over the speaker and I'm coming down the escalator and I'm looking at this eight-year-old and there became um, an issue where she was trying to ask her parents where I came from. You know, who is this woman who you say is my sister? I didn't know you had any other children. So for her, that was confusing. I introduced her to my adoptive family and she said, well, you know, who are these people? And so for several years, even into adulthood, she was under the impression that maybe my parents were relatives of hers or I have a brother. And she goes, well, if he's your brother, does that make him my brother as well? And we're all looking at each other like, mm, not exactly. But we did not know what she had been told. We did not know what sort of explanations had been given for all of these circumstances. So tell us a little bit about how your adoptive parents came to adopt you. I think, you know, like a lot of parents, uh, they wanted to be parents. Where they were, they, they wanted to adopt a child. They had friends, actually, who had adopted children from the same agency that I came from. And so they were able to give them guidance. And my family lived in Detroit or the Detroit area, which is two and a half hours away from Grand Rapids. Um, but they would visit me in foster care frequently before adopting me. Would you say you had a healthy childhood? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I had a very healthy childhood. I knew I was adopted from always the start. You know, there were no mysteries to that. My parents were very, um, you know, very, again, like I said, open and progressive. We went camping every weekend, had activities, so I would say, yes, definitely very healthy. Is there anything that you can think of that maybe they could have done differently? As adoptive parents, I don't know that there was anything they could have done differently. I think at the time um, when we were adopted, there were not a lot of resources for adoptive parents. You know, we didn't have things like um, the Center for Adoption Support and Education or the Barker Foundation or any of those things. So I think that one of the things that they did was they had a network of other adoptive parents. Mm. And that was, um, you know, we'd have softball games or cookouts and things like that. So that was very fun. But I, as far as could they have done anything differently? No, I think they did everything that they knew how to do at that time. Very good. So I know you've been a staunch advocate for open records, adoptee causes, and rights. You co-facilitated the Adoption News Service newsletter and co-moderator of Black Adoptee Support and Education. Talk to us a little bit about what that looks like for you to be an advocate. Sure. So to be an advocate looks like not supporting secrets or lies which a lot of times when I meet people who are in the adoption sphere or constellation, they've been exposed to that. And I think that, you know, at 15, going to probate court and not being able to get my birth certificate, like every other parent who's registering their kids for school or other things, I, I found out, I just realized that's really interesting. And I remember at one point, 
speaking with a biological aunt who I'd been in reunion with. And I said, well, my adoptive father, I, I told her the name of my father on my birth certificate. And she goes, well, if you're trying to find your father, why don't you reach out to that person with that name? I said, no, you don't understand. That's my adoptive father's name. And they're like, so who is your father? I'm like, I have a brand new birth certificate. I have a brand new identity. I tell people sealed records are better than the witness protection program because unless you have open records, sometimes you'll never know who you are. But I think the irony is that I've been able to get a job and a social security number and a driver's license with sort of a forged document. Mm. It's really hard when these records are sealed and and we're like not to know the beginning of our lives and, and so much more information like the original birth certificate can allow us to get involved in a search and hopefully be in reunion. The secrecy is just so damaging. Absolutely. You are in reunion, so to speak, yes. uh, with your maternal side. And what about your paternal side? We don't know my paternal side. Okay. And you plan on doing DNA at some point? I will do DNA. I will do DNA, but I don't think, I'm not really sure about um, what I'm going to find. I don't think that anyone else in my biological family is interested in DNA. Yeah. I hear that a lot, particularly in the Black community. I did DNA in 2017 and am in reunion with my paternal side because of the match. I would have more matches if more of my family put their DNA into the database. So, yeah, it's just one of those things where I can see where someone would be leery of doing that. At the same time, I'm hopeful that I can make more connections uh, that way. So what has been like tools that you can share with us that have helped you through the years. I know you're younger than me, but you've got some decades of lived experience that I'm sure sure. they're tools you use to to navigate your experience. Um, One of my first tools was the Adoptee Birth Parent Support Network, which was local in the area where I was living. And we would meet in uh, meeting rooms at the church or the library. And that was the first time I've been around other adopted people in in my community and hearing just tons and tons of stories. Some of them mirrored mine and other ones were just like, I can't believe that happened. And also, I think a lot of books, I think Betty Jean Lifton was a a great book. Just her work, um, Nancy Verrier, you know, just reading a lot of books by adoptive parents as well as by adoptees, by social workers and researchers, just to know that I wasn't the only person there. Additionally, I used to go to meetings at the Center for Adoption Support and Education. I used to also go to meetings at um, the Barker Foundation, just sort of support group meetings. And those are the things that really helped me, regardless of where you find them, just to know that I wasn't the only person, you know, who sort of lived life with this sort of thin veil over my face all the time. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Nancy Verrier, and you're referring to her book, The Primal Womb. 
your primal wound and um, coming home to self. Oh, both of them. Yes. Yes. It took me eight years to finish coming home to self. <laughs> it took me probably eight years to finish primal wound. They can be very difficult to get through. Yes. And in a previous conversation, you said the primal wound is the devil, as in badass. You want to talk about what you mean by that? Uh, yes. I think that the primal wound, Nancy Verrier has her finger on the adoptee button, you know, when you read that. And I think that it is, it's tough to read. But because she knows us so well, it's very helpful to read. So when I said it's sort of badass, it's, she doesn't hold anything back. And you can read her book and you say, oh, that's why I do this. Oh, that's why I process this way. And I remember meeting Nancy Verrier at an AAC convention. And I remember saying to her, we were in the elevator, just her and I. And I said, I've read your books and I think you're great. And you know me to a T, you know me inside and out. And she looked at me very calmly and very respectfully. And she goes, I don't know you, but I know adoptees, you know? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow. So for me, it was very personal for her. It was her, her life's work, but it was awesome. Yes. Yeah. I got to meet Nancy on more than one occasion at the conferences I would attend. And I agree that the primal womb is difficult as it was for me to read. I've read it twice. It has been a tool. It's been very useful the way she's put words to some of the things that I have felt and maybe will continue. Maybe it'll continue to come up for me throughout my life. I'm glad she wrote. I'm glad she wrote it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there are definitely, um, I want to say differences in being an adoptee in your family versus being um, a biological child in the family. And Nancy talks about that. And as a parent raising my own child, I can see some differences or some correlations in those behaviors as far as how my daughter experiences the world versus how I experience the world. Oh, that was good. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. And as a Black same-race domestic adoptee, is there anything that is sometimes misunderstood by others? Yes and no. I think that um, when we talk about Black same race, we don't know, first of all, with my my brother and I, we have at least, my mother always told us, we know you have at least one Black parent, but we don't know the rest of you. And we can't give you those pieces. And so I think that my parents were very progressive in letting us discover our own selves and not imposing a culture on us and letting us try to discover it. But I think that it, it, it's helpful and it's not helpful in that, you know, it's not one size fits all. And my mother always told us, you know, black people, and I use air quotes, are not homogenous. And I think that people do assume that there's some homogeneity when someone looks like you, and that's not always the case. And sometimes they don't look like you. Right. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Do you feel as though you belong or fit in with your adoptive family? I'm going to say that my adoptive family has been wonderful and strengthening. There are parts of my adoptive family who um, I adore and who adore me. There are other parts that may be a little bit more indifferent, but I think you can find that in any family. I've never lacked a sense of belonging, but 
it's obvious, I think, that there's a difference. And I think for someone to deny that you're different is denying a part of you. So does my family see me as theirs? Yes. Do they recognize my differences? Yes. And I think both of those things are affirming. Wow, that was a beautiful answer. Yeah, that's that was really good. And I know you have some obligations, and I want to honor your time. And I'll just close by asking you, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? Hmm, I need to think about that. But <laughs> in a nutshell, I think these questions were, were very strong, have encouraged me to, just in answering them, look a little bit deeper, you know, even in prepping for this interview. So I really just, again, I appreciate the honor of being able to be here with you and, and the guests and, you know, share parts of my story because as you know, with all of us, there are many, many layers to adoption, to your socialization within your your adoptive family. You're trying to understand your biological family if you have that opportunity. You know, I know people who are late discovery adoptees, uh, just a, a myriad of stories. I have friends who were raised in one religion and find out that their family is in another religion that doesn't like the religion that they were raised in. Or I know people who have relatives who died of food allergies and they don't know what the relative ate. So they're always afraid to eat. And so I think that we have so many stories that um, I'm just happy to be part of this constellation and share my story with, with anyone who wants to listen. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I do want to ask you this question. Sure. What has been the most rewarding and or challenging thing about being connected to the adoption community? Not feeling isolated. That has been the most rewarding thing. It's like sometimes regardless of demographic, I can listen to people and say, I've felt that, I've heard that, I've seen that. And I think that there's things that are just very unique. I think that, um, you know, just like if you're in any profession, let's say, Let's say, for example, you're a doctor, you know, when you talk to other people in the medical profession, you're going to speak the same language and you're going to understand the same things. And I think that being part of the adoption constellation, I don't have to explain things to people. We just get it. You know, someone will say something and you just, oh, I can totally relate to that. You don't have to draw a diagram. I'm right there with you. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And that's that's refreshing. Because other people will use language like, well, who are your real parents? Or, you know, there's a lot of ignorance about adoption, too. And I think when I'm around adopted people, I don't have to educate people also. I can just be a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Anything challenging? Uh, I think the only challenging thing for me right now is just navigating a reunion. And, you know, it's very tender because you don't want to step on people's toes. But, you know, as a, as a person, as a human being, I feel like I have a right to know where I come from. And everyone doesn't share that right to know or that need to know. One adoptee advocate said sometimes for some of us, it's like a homing instinct, like a pigeon. Everyone doesn't respect that. So I think that just navigating the reunion for me is tricky. It's all great material. Mm. That's the way I look at it. Well, I look forward to staying connected to you. Absolutely. And, and yeah, and co-creating this conversation has been wonderful. So thank you so much for taking the time to have it with me. 
No, and thank you for having me. I, I totally appreciate it and am just delighted to be able to share uh, my experience. Thank you so much. The Primal Wound by Nancy Verrier has been respected and criticized in the adoptee community through the years. I've acknowledged how it has helped me process some of what I didn't have words for regarding my thoughts and feelings as an adoptee. When I first heard Shayla refer to the primal wound as badass in a good way, I sat with that, and a part of it resonates with me. Shayla's six-word memoir, The Weirdness of Adoption, Last Generations, is powerful and thought-provoking. I found myself reflecting on what feels eerie, uncanny, unusual, mysterious, strange, or abnormal about it. And there are a few more synonyms to describe something like relinquishment and adoption being unnatural. When I consider it lasting for generations, it makes me ponder what I recently heard Brad Stolberg, author of Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Brad suggests an approach he calls the four P's. Pause, process, make a plan, and then proceed. As adoptees, big changes happened early in our life, continue to happen, especially in reunion. And for some of us, it has taken decades to process things. We just might be doing that for a lifetime. It was heartbreaking to learn that Shayla's biological family were told that she didn't live through childbirth when that couldn't be farther from the truth. They grieved all those years ago, and now another type of grief has taken its place. All concerned family members are trying to make sense of being told an untruth, and I hold space for how hard that must be. I appreciate hearing of all the advocacy work Shayla has and continues to do in our community. I imagine her running toward the fire instead of away from it to deal with not being a supporter of secrets and lies. Thank you, Shayla, for having a conversation with me. From the first time we met, I always looked forward to being in fellowship and staying in contact with you. Your smile, openness, and willingness to lend your expertise to our community serves all of us well. I have felt your support in a variety of ways, and I'm happy to offer it right back to you in the months and years to come. As we all continue to move forward in the ever-present adoptee movement by sharing a part of our journey, being advocates for other adoptees, and showing up for one another, generations to come will likely be positively affected by our contributions. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit jenniferdianegoston.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com 
forward slash adopteeland. Thank you for being here.